What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both of their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. If you've been enjoying the Indie Hackers podcast and you want an easy way to support the show, you should leave a review for us on iTunes. Probably the fastest way to do that if you're on a Mac is just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that will open up iTunes for you. Today, I'm talking to Rob Walling. Rob came on the show about a year ago to discuss his almost two decades long journey building and selling profitable online businesses and culminating in the sale of Drip, his latest company, to the tune of many millions of dollars. Rob is also the founder of MicroConf, the world's largest conference for bootstrappers, and more recently is the founder of TinySeed, the only startup accelerator for bootstrappers. The way TinySeed works is Rob invests in a bunch of companies who all join together as a single cohort. And then over the course of a year, they work together to build their companies and grow them into something bigger. I think it's a super cool model. And Rob is particularly interesting to talk to you because as an investor, he gets to see what works and what doesn't work across a wide array of companies. Whereas most people I have on the podcast can only really extrapolate from a sample size of one. They're only one person and they can only tell you about their experiences. So I hope that you enjoy the episode. I think there's a lot to learn from the perspective of an investor. Last week, you told me that you have over 700 audiobooks in your Audible account. What does that say about you, Rob? And also, how many of those books have you actually listened to? It's a little embarrassing. It's it, it says that I'm a learn learnaholic. I have listened. What's interesting is I bet there's about 150 to 200 kids' books, and then my wife probably has about 100. So I have a portion of that number. But I have listened. If they're in my account and I bought them, I have listened to them. So it, wow. I, I keep them on a wish list, and then when I am ready to add it into my you know list of three or four books then I buy it. And here's what I did discover too, little secret right off the bat is you can return audible books and I'll get 10, 25% in. And I'm like, this is not good. And I just, you go in and you exchange it. And so if you paid a credit, you get a credit back. If you paid cash, you get the cash back. So I've been doing that ruthlessly now for about a year and a half to two years. Cause I used to, there are probably some in there that, you know, from five years ago before I knew this, that I got halfway through and bailed on, but I didn't get the refund for. And I mean, again, I'm, Audible's never had an issue because I have 700 books that I've kept, you know, so yeah, um, it says that I like, I like to learn, man. And that's like a huge part of being a successful founder. There's, there's gotta be a little bit of ambition. There's gotta be a little bit of willingness to take some risks, but I also mm-hmm. think you need to learn stuff really fast. Yeah. That, that book returning tip is pretty good because I also finish, I start a lot of books and don't finish them. I yeah. drop them and sometimes they're not even bad. They're like, oh, I've gotten enough out of this book and I can tell it's not going to say that much more. And then I just drop it and move on to something else. But I haven't yet figured out that you could return the book and get a refund. Yeah. So I'm going to start doing that. And I only do that with books that I don't, if I get, a, if I listen halfway and I'm like, man, I got some great stuff out of this, but I'm not going to finish it. I don't return it. It's just a per, you know, my personal thing is like, yeah, I mean, cause I feel like the author, you know, the author should get the royalties cause I got some value out of it, but it's only if I didn't, you know. Patrick Collison's website is a link to this passage from a book by Umberto Eco. It's this Italian philosopher and novelist. And he had a, like a couple apartments with just huge libraries and people would walk in and always ask him, you know, have you read all these books? Just kind of the same question I ask you about your audiobook library. And he liked to to troll people and talk about how he hadn't read any of them. Otherwise, why would he keep them there? But I think what's cool about it is he had this idea that essentially your library can also serve as a reminder for all the stuff that you don't know. 
And I thought that was really inspiring. I heard that and I immediately bought a bunch of books that like all my friends had recommended. I've got maybe like a hundred sitting on my shelf and I've read mm. less than half of them. And it's very humbling because every book I look, I can be like, oh, that's a book my buddy Dave recommended. And I know there's yeah. a bunch of stuff that Dave knows that I don't know because he read that book and I haven't, which is great. But also it hasn't really motivated me to read any more than I already have. <laughs> I'm still like a book or two a month. So it's good for humility, but not necessarily for uh, motivation to read more. Right, right. You know, I got to be honest, man, we're in, obviously in, the, in quarantine right now. The thing I miss most about it is going to bookstores. And I don't actually buy that many physical books. But for the exact same reason you just said, I love being around books yeah. because it reminds, I love the knowledge and the idea that there's all this knowledge out there. And I have since I was a kid, my mom used to, you know, when I was 10 years old, we'd go to the mall and she'd, I'd go into like Walden Books, which is totally out of business now, or B. Dalton Booksellers. And I would, she could leave me for two or three hours. And um, while that sounds irresponsible in today's parenting environment, I would just sit and read and read and then I'd have a big stack and like, how many can we buy? So totally get it. Yeah, books are kind of the, the ultimate ambient decoration to just kind of have around. Yeah. Is there any book you've read in the last year or two that you just can't stop thinking about, you can't shut up about, you're telling everybody about some idea that you learned from that book? You know, I, there's a book that impacted me a lot. And I have to, I've referred it to a few people, but it's it's called, uh, it was actually referred to me by uh, Stephen Kellett, who's a microcomp attendee. It's called Why We Sleep. And it's just the science of sleep. And it talks about how sleeping in a room that is not really dark relatively cold and really quiet is even though you won't you kind of don't notice it in your physiology it's not ideal as, from an evolutionary perspective and that there's basically a an epidemic of people who don't get enough sleep teenagers all the angst that comes with that is scientists are starting to think it's that wow when you're 15 and going through puberty you need 10 12 hours of sleep at night whereas high school students get you know much less than that and it, it just sleep is like, well, I often say like pricing is the, is the biggest lever in a SaaS business or really in, in most businesses. Sleep, I think, is perhaps one of the biggest levers in, in our lives. Sleep and exercise probably. So why we uh, sleep, super, super fascinating. One of the books I have on my shelf as well, completely agree. I'm one of these like, I'll go without sleep and be like, I feel perfectly fine. But then there are certain things where I can tell like, oh, this lack of sleep is affecting me. Like when I'm, mm. when I'm coding, for example, and I find myself really just wanting to like take a bunch of shortcuts and just get things yeah. done as quickly as possible and not like write the right code. And I'm like, yeah. oh, it's because I'm tired. Or if I'm playing poker or something and just like not really thinking about every hand, I can tell like like a really subtle difference between how I'm playing if I'm like not caught up on sleep or not. And so I think all the yeah. tips in that book are super great. And it, any founder who wants to operate, you know, the peak levels are probably getting a lot more sleep, doing a lot more exercise than they think. Yeah. Even though it seems probably, you know, on its face more immediately productive to just stay up an extra hour and get like answer those emails, et cetera. Yeah. For most of my adult life until I, I don't know when I discovered this, this is in the last 10 years, I discovered the same thing, my sensitivity to sleep and how it impacts me. And for me, it's not just productivity. It is literally my outlook. It's like my opinions on matters would change. I'd wake up and I'd almost feel depressed or very pessimistic to the point of, I'm running drip and I would get up and just be like this business. I mean, you know, we're doing whatever we're doing seven figures in, in ARR. And I'd be like, this business isn't going to work. Like there are too many competitors and we're just going to get crushed. And I would have this feeling of impending doom. I wouldn't tell anyone, but I would feel this crushing weight all day. And then I would get a good night's sleep and wake up and be like, what was I thinking? Like it literally <laughs> would change my psychology. So I started tying it to, to sleep and mm. it, it was, it was three things for me. It was sleep, lack of exercise and like drinking alcohol the night before, which would make it really degrades your sleep quality. 
And yeah. so as I tweaked those things, uh, I really don't have many days. It's very rare that I have a day like that now. It's funny. You hear like all this, all this basic advice that we've probably been hearing since we were kids, you know, sleep yeah. and exercise. And like for startups, it's kind of the same thing. Like talk to your customers, yeah. charge more. And it's one thing to hear that stuff and be like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. But it's another thing to actually do it. And there's like a very long list of things that like I get and I'm tired of hearing, but that I don't actually do. And I think, you know, a lot of it is just the fundamentals. You know, if you're playing basketball, you're on a sports team, the coaches are just like, do the fundamentals. That'll get you 90% of the way there. And most people just don't do the fundamentals. They're focused on like all these like fancy tricks and extra stuff. And they're not really doing the basics. Right. I'm going to implement, I'm going to buy the next book and implement the next productivity thing and the next growth hack and the next body hack. Cause I'm going to take this newest thing protein that I pour in my coffee with this la la la. And it's like, but are you, are you doing the basics? Cause the base, you know what? The basics are boring. The basics are tend to be hard work or at least require discipline. And I think it's a perfect analogy for starting a startup or, or just living life and being healthy. It's like, we want to read about the next growth hack, you know, but really it's about what well, we know it. What is it, Cortland? It's talk to your customers. It's find the pain. It's so, all of it. And it, it really, um, it is, it is interesting. So you're trying to do something that I don't know if there is a list of basics out there that I don't know if it's something that's really been done before. You're trying to basically take the Y Combinator accelerator model and apply it to bootstrappers. And you talked about this a bit on the podcast a year ago when you first launched Tiny Seed. Remind us all about the concept and how it works. Yeah, so Tiny Seed is the first startup accelerator designed for bootstrappers. We really focused on SaaS. So I tend to say now it's like the first startup accelerator designed for SaaS bootstrappers. In essence, we we saw, I say we, it's, it's Anar Volset is my co-founder and I. And just through my podcast and and the, the conference microconf and all the stuff I do online and just conversations with founders. Um, I've done advising. I've done a little bit of angel investing on my own. I did about 12 or 13 angel investments privately. So I have a lot of insight into, I have a lot of conversations and then I have exposure to quite a few founders and companies and all that. And I kept seeing this this bifurcation where it was like, all right, you can raise venture capital, which really most of us don't want to do because it comes with a bunch of strings attached and not always, it's getting better, but really, I don't want to move to Silicon Valley. I don't want to work 90 hour weeks, et cetera, right. et cetera, all the tropes there. And then there were folks that were that were self-funding or bootstrapping, and which is what I've done. But it's hard. It's hard. I mean, you know this, that like bootstrapping a company is hard. And so I remember at an early stage of Drip, I was like, man, if I had literally like a couple hundred thousand dollars, my life would be, it, not in my personal account, but in the, in the business account, my life would be noticeably different. And I started seeing companies do this. So like customer.io raised a couple hundred grand back in 2012. And then Jordan Gall with Carthook raised money I invested in them. And they're not raising it to go on a venture track. <laughs> they're raising it to, in essence, get to profitability, to reach escape velocity, to get product market fit, to start marketing, and then to become profitable at some point. And they can raise venture later if they want, or they could sell the company, or they could just take dividends out. And it's this whole different model. And so I started seeing a lot of founders interested in that. I started kind of talking about it, thinking about you know who's doing this, where's the money coming from? And I kept getting, eventually I kind of was over-diversified with startups. You know, I, I, I had too much money in angel investments. And so people were asking like, where, who's investing like this? And where can I find investors that aren't trying to shoot for unicorns? They aren't only funding the Ubers and the, you know, the Instacarts, but they'll fund just a, a SaaS idea that can do 5 million a year. And so that, that was the original idea is I got together with ANR and, and we raised about f- just under four and a half million dollars 
as a fund. And then, but we didn't just want to write checks. I mean, my whole adult life since I started, you know, blogging in 2005 has been help, like trying to educate, but just trying to help founders. Mm -hmm. Cause when I, if I was, if I'm a year ahead of you, like, I feel like I can offer some advice at least on what you're doing. So it's a year long remote accelerator. And we decided to do a year long because SaaS takes a really long time. And we felt like the 90 day dash to a demo day is helpful, but I, we think there's more value in, you know, in, in a longer program. And then we wanted to do a batch because, man, just the, the network and the, um, the motivation of work, you know, working together with other founders is huge. And it's remote because really where, where else could you pull together that many bootstrappers? Because we are so distributed, you know, we're in hundreds of country, I'm sorry, hundreds of uh, uh, cities uh, across the world. So that's the long and short of it. And we just launched this second batch. I saw it. It's, it's a lot of great companies. I am a mentor and Tiny Seed, yeah. and you've got kind of an all-star list of mentors as well. Heaton Shaw, Jason, and DHH from Basecamp, Rand Fishkin, Patio 11, uh, your wife, Sherry Walling, and Laura Roeder, April Dunn. It's like a who's who of Indie Hackers podcast guests, basically helping out these, these startups. Let's talk about this cohort model, which I think is fascinating. So I went through Y Combinator in 2011, and the way any accelerator works is everybody joins at the same time. The latest batch of Tiny Seed all these companies join at the same time and they kind of go through this process of building their companies while talking to other people. I think that's kind of, you know, the secret to why Y Combinator is so successful and why a lot of the companies are so successful. It's kind of an X factor that companies going through YC have that companies who are just sort of on their own don't have. A bunch of peers who are working alongside them. What is your take on the cohort model and how's it working for Tiny Seed? Yeah, it was something so Anar went through YC back in 2009 and he knew the value of the same, you know, experiencing it like you knew the value. And then for me, having started a couple of different online communities and then microconf and seeing the value of getting people together and realizing that there's so much more value in, you know, the, the hallway track, the conversations in the hallway versus watching a speaker speak. It was kind of a no brainer from the start. And I, in our very first really crappy hack together landing page for tiny seed that I, you know, put up overnight we had kind of some basic tenants, like it was a little bit manifesto-ish, right? This is what we believe. We, we believe it should be remote. We believe, you know, we should not shoot after unicorns. And we believe in the batch model, the cohort model, the support between batch members, the willingness to help the shared expertise of, hey, two batch members are amazing in enterprise sales. And three of these folks really know SEO well. It's just this, it's, it's amazing. And then even to be able to uh, friendly competition against one another of like, Hey, they're doing pretty well. Let's we're we're not in the same vertical. Maybe we can borrow a a trick like what's working for you right now, you know? Yeah. As well as as well as the network, you know, it's like just everyone has their own network and we're able to tap into that. So, I have no desire <laughs> to not do that. I mean, I think that is a I've actually seen there is a fund that did batch models and then didn't and then went back to doing batch models because of, of how course. much value they saw in it, you know. Yeah, there's just so much motivation in having other people working on their yeah. things at the same time as you. And I, I feel like, you know, I talked to a lot of founders who just have trouble with motivation. They wake up every day and like they're living in like, you know, some city where there's not that many other indie hackers. They don't have a lot of friends who are doing this and it's just them. And, you know, maybe they're not getting a lot of sleep. So they wake up and they have like this existential crisis like, oh man, is my company going to work? Is this stupid, etc.? But when you have other people motivating you and doing the same thing, if you have some of this friendly competition, you have some of the support, it sounds like you know, a little airy fairy, just like, oh, everyone worked together. But like mm -hmm. the reality is we're such social creatures 
We're so programmed inherently to care like what other people think, to care about status, to care about not letting down our colleagues, to care about impressing people and all these like sort of like emotional levers that pull us along. I think it's it's incredibly powerful just to have a ton of people you're working with. Yeah. And and people who genuinely care about your success because yeah. you're like a I don't know, you're like a college class or a sorority or fraternity where you really are you have a pretty deep connection to one another. And, and especially, you know, we do three in-person retreats during the year just to get everybody together because in-person really, you know, it does Trump, <laughs> does Trump Zoom and video chat. And man, those those bonds start to start to go pretty deep. Friendships form, you know, that aren't just talking about work. And yeah, it's pretty special. So let's talk about how this works. I had Tyler Tringis on the podcast last year. He runs Earnest Capital, which has kind of a similar goal, funding for bootstrappers. And he said, quote, you can't just take the YC model and copy it over to bootstrappers. And of course, what he meant by that was you can't just copy and paste. You have to adapt it to account for the differences between bootstrappers who you're investing in and you know what makes them different than like the kind of high growth startup trajectory that YC companies take. And there's a huge question mark, obviously, around whether or not this model can actually work. So tiny seed is a year in. Is it working? I, I mean, I would say, yeah, you know, the companies are growing. The feedback we're getting is overwhelmingly positive in terms of kind of like we're talking about, like people said, man, I, I didn't almost didn't realize the value of being in a batch. The quality of the companies we get, you know, who apply is high. We get there's obviously a lot of demand on the company side uh, between the first two application periods. We got, uh, I believe it's almost 1600 applicants, oh. for batch one and two combined. Yeah, it's a lot. And then the quality of them meaning the traction or just the experience level is high. So we are obviously tweaking things as we go along. Like the first batch, the whole year was going to be kind of the same where it's like, oh, we'll do some, we'll do mentor calls. We'll, we'll definitely, you know, interact a lot with the batch members and we will um, do a lot of kind of mastermind calls where the batches, the batches talking to each other. But we realized there was a lot of, there was some education that was needed early on. And then there was like less of that needed as you went along. So we we're tweaking things to where um, the kind of the curriculum or the, you know, the week to week, how it looks is different in batch two. But at this point, it's really tweaks, you know, it's things that we're just kind of, kind of mixing it up. How does uh, kind of your funding model work as an investor? I want to talk about like the business of being an investor. For example, how do you get paid? As, as the sort of partner of Tiny Seed, you know it's so funny. Every time you say as an investor, I'm like, wait, who? Because I don't. I about? I still identify as a founder. That's like, who, and and I, I'm not just saying like I truly, I've been doing this work without writing checks in companies for 15 years. You know, because it's something I I enjoy it so much being around ambitious people trying to do interesting things and make and create companies. And again, I was doing it and not writing checks. And that's why I started a conference. And that's why I've been blogging and podcasting about this topic, because it's just so interesting to me. So while I do, obviously, technically, I am an investor, there is no I write checks into companies. Um, I don't identify as that I really do identify it as someone I, I almost look at the the money to be able to write a check to a founder is an excuse to be able to help them over an extended period of time and to justify that. Like I have to justify it to myself. I can't do that for free, right? Yeah. It really is a side effect of all the other stuff, all the mentorship and the teaching and the helping and the, the trying to do it. I would say, all oh, right. So you're quite, <laughs> that was a, a preamble, but you were saying, how do we get paid? Like, do you mean me personally? Yeah, you personally. Because I think, I think 
you know, there's like VC firms, there's private right. equity firms, there's hedge funds. From what I understand, there's like kind of this two plus 20 model yeah. that's very common. That's Does right. that work with Tiny Seed? Is that what you're using? And, and I think it's yeah. just an interesting model for people to learn about because a lot of people don't know. Yeah, uh, cool. So, so how does it work at Tiny Seed? Yeah, it's it is based on a two and twenty model. But I'll give you an example. So, like, we raised our first fund. Normally, a venture capital firm would raise a fund and then they deploy it over. I think it's three to f- three to five years, and then it plays out over another five to x, x amount of years. Mm-hmm. We deployed our entire fund in two years, and we run an accelerator program. So we have a full time you know program manager. We have in person retreats. We have like way more expenses than a, if we were just writing checks. We would have almost no expenses. Like I take that's literally a stipend. Like <laughs> so, I it is not. Uh, uh, buckets of money coming out to me. So we front load that two, two, the 2%, typically the two and 20 model is if you raise a fund, you take 2% of the fund value per year as management fees. So imagine if you raise a million dollar fund, then 2% for 10 years, you're going to take out 20 grand a year for 10 years, totally 200,000. And then the 20% is called carry. And it really is just, you get after the fund is paid back, so after a million would be paid back in that case, then uh, the fund that you get twenty percent of the profit of any of any gains that you make, yeah. two and twenty. We have to front load that too. We can't do two percent a year again. Our fund was four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and two percent of that would have been ninety grand, and that would not be enough to keep the lights on. Given that we're running this, you know, we meet w- multiple times a week with founders for fifty-two weeks, so it's not something we can just write and kind of be advisor. So we've, we front load some of that and we essentially run it effectively run it at break even, which is what most venture funds do. And most venture funds don't make any money unless they carry that, that profit, unless they make a profit. And that's the return to uh, investors. Yeah, I know a lot of people in SF where it's become trendy for a lot of these like higher growth tech startups, founders to like raise a fund after their company exits. Yeah. And there's all sorts of smaller funds. But because of that model, a lot of people just raise huge funds because yeah. they're going to get that 2% management fee. They'll try to raise yeah. like $100 million from whoever they can. And that means they can justify paying themselves $2 million a year. Right. But then unlike Tiny Seed, they don't necessarily have a lot of expenses. So that just right. like goes in their pockets for being an investor. And yeah. I think in a lot of ways, it, it misaligns their incentives. Because yeah, they can make more money from the 20% carry if they actually make good investments. But they're still rich just from the fees. And so they don't yeah. actually have to have good returns for their investors. I would agree with you there. That's, yeah, it, it, it would feel weird to me to take personal money out of the management fee. That to me, that's not what it's for. It's it's for running the business. You know, I don't know. I'm I am new to this though, right? I've been, I mean, I've been. In, I wrote my first angel check uh, maybe ten years ago, but really this type of stuff, I'm about I'm about two years in, and you know, uh, I, I I I've seen some weird stuff like that that doesn't make a, a ton of sense. What would you say? You know, given your sort of new perspective, that your average bootstrapper doesn't understand about fundraising? What are some common misconceptions? I mean, I think there's some bootstrappers can have kind of the black and white mindset of like, well, all funding is bad. And it's like, well, you know, there may be some venture. There there are, of course, these horror stories of raising venture capital and having strings attached and having, oh, I can't sell my company because it was blocked. I was fired from my own company uh, because the board fired me. There's all these things, liquidity preferences. Oh, if I sell, they they get paid back 2x before I get any. And those things do happen and have happened. I I think it's less so these days. But then there's this whole other thread of, you know, to say all funding is bad. It's like tiny seed is, I just wouldn't call it venture capital. You know, it's it's much more 
growth capital for early stage SaaS companies. And it, it's, you have to know who are your investors because all investors are not alike. You know, if you go to Sand Hill Road in the Bay Area, there are venture capitalists and they, they want a billion dollar companies or $10 billion companies. Whereas Tiny Seed is me and Anar and we, we just have a different, uh, different view on it. And we believe that a, a seven figure, eight figure SaaS company is, it's a huge win for the founders, life-changing amounts of money can come out of that. And if we can help more founders get there, like that, that's the goal. And then, and again, we have to justify it. You know, I can't personally do it for free. And so the model that we've set up, I think people wouldn't have dreamed of it 10 years. Like if you went to a venture capitalist and said, can you make money investing in companies that won't be unicorns? Most of them will tell you no, because the, the, kind of the wisdom, the common wisdom in the VC spaces, you, you make money on your Airbnbs and your Ubers, and you lose money on most of the other ones. But you know, the way we've modeled it out, that's not, you know, it doesn't appear to be the case. So explain your model to me, like, how do you make it so that this, this model works? Does it, does it have to be the case that like everyone you invest in succeeds? How do you actually turn a profit if you're not, you know, expecting these companies to become, you know, billion dollar unicorns? Yeah, yeah, there's two things, really. One is, fewer companies will fail. These are just more like, you know, when you go for a base hit, meaning let's say a seven or eight figure SaaS app, so many more make it there than, than implode. Because it, when you pour an inordinate amount of money, let's say you put 10, 20, $30 million into a company and you say, all right, become a billion dollar company. It instantly, your risk shoots through the roof that you're going to fail because you hire 50, a hundred people. Uh, there's way more chaos. You're moving way faster. And it just makes it more likely that you are going to fail. Uh, I've seen it many times, actually. Um, I'm here. You know, yeah, I think living in San Francisco, you probably see it all the time where you're like, hey, that company would have been a great five or $10 million business, but they raised funding and then they trucked the company. They destroyed it, you know? And again, I'm not saying all VC does that, but I'm saying it just increases the likelihood. What, what a big chunk of venture capital, you know, if you raise 10, 20, 30 million, it, it really increases your likelihood of failing or of being a, a unicorn a billion dollar company, it's kind of, they want it to be binary because they, that's just the way it is. Whereas we say, you know what, what if, you know, 40, 50, 60% of the companies could be successful and be these nice base hits and none of them become, become unicorns. And then the other thing is, you know, uh, as opposed to Y Combinator, they're able to give slightly higher valuations than we are because they will have the drop boxes and the Airbnbs. Those are kind of the two factors that allow us to exist. I have probably five or six conversations a year with founders where they're either super excited that they just raised a ton of money from VCs and they're going down that sort of very polarized path of like unicorn or bust. And they're just super confident they're going to become a unicorn. And then, you know, next year I follow up and they're like, I should have just bootstrapped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the company could be doing pretty well. It could be like wow. making money and growing. But if it's not growing at this ridiculously crazy rate, Right. Uh, with those kind of investors, you're just you're the walking dead. You can't raise another round. No one yeah. wants to touch you, but you also owe your investors a bunch of money and you feel like crap, even if your company is doing well. There are so many more companies that can be successful seven and eight figure businesses than there are can be billion dollar companies. And yet they've just been neglected, you know, by this. They've been neglected by kind of people who can give them a little bit of funding to help them help them get along, you know, with, with few strings. So that's really that's really been the goal. So let's talk about how you start one of those companies because uh, I know we're making it seem a little easy here. You know, like it's a base hit, it's way easier. It's still hard. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of things that you've learned 
as an investor and also as like a very storied founder who spent a lot of time starting pretty successful companies. First of all, do you think your your perspective as an investor has changed how you think about starting one of these basic companies? I do because I'm seeing even more, even though I've for 10, 15 years been immersed in the space and thinking about it and talking to founders, I'm now getting more and more deep, deep dive data points. So I have 30, I believe, across Tiny Seed and then the stuff I, the angel investments I did before Tiny Seed, I have 36 companies I've invested in. And I, for most of them, I am either, you know, if they're in Tiny Seed, I'm talking to them every week. Um, and if the angel investments, I typically get like monthly updates. So I'm seeing financials, I'm seeing how they operate, I'm seeing how different founders approach things, just a lot of a broader insight, I think, than I've had in the past. And so it has made me definitely seeing patterns in company, you know, example is like, this is from a little bit personal experience, but also uh, from looking across companies, it's like, I don't plan to ever start a SaaS again. But if I did, I would start from the assumption of, I want one with expansion, like expansion revenue is built in and net negative churn is possible. I, w- I don't think I would build a business without that because it's just such an immense growth lever. Explain that to people who don't know what expansion revenue is or, or net negative churn because it's, I, I agree, it's like immense, but it's not an obvious thing if you're a first time nope. founder that this is a thing you can even think about or plan ahead for. Yep. And I didn't, I didn't plan for it. So I started a company called Drip, which was an email service provider and later became marketing automation. And we had expansion revenue and we hit net negative churn. We did it by accident. So, but once I saw it, I was like, this is cr- incredible. So, Expansion revenue is basically where, let's say you're a SaaS company and you have three or four pricing tiers, or you maybe have 50 pricing tiers, but you have a, a metric, a value metric it's called, which is like in email service providers, it's a number of subscribers, right? Or in, in CRM, it's a number of seats, number of salespeople you're paying for. And that that number organically, like over time, it, it ticks up. It goes up for the majority of your customers and it exp- your revenue expands even when you're, you could literally not add any new customers and you know enough customers are expanding. And so you think about email subscribers, most lists, if people are working on them, their goal is to build them. And the more you know, subscribers you get, the more you wind up paying MailChimp or AWeber or Drip. And so that's the expansion piece. Net negative churn is where your churn, not counting, you, know, it's, you don't count new customers, but where literally your existing customer base is growing and it's expanding your revenue base. If you literally added zero new customers, your revenue would increase month to month. And in many of these businesses like a Zoom or a Slack where it's seat-based or you know, Salesforce where it's seat-based or MailChimp, you know, which I believe did 700, bootstrapped to $700 million in ARR. They did that in 2019. Expansion revenue is a substantial portion of that. And so it's just an immense... It's kind of that, you know, I, I like to think of if recurring pricing, like if SaaS is the golden ticket of like, you know, building and selling software, I think like net negative churn expansion revenue is like the golden ticket of SaaS. It's like the thing that you, the pinnacle, it's the thing you aspire to do. And it's not possible in every space. Every app can't do it. Every vertical can't do it, but there are some ways to engineer it. Yeah, I think it's one of those things when you're a first time founder, you're very focused on acquisition. Like you don't have any customers, you don't have any users, and so you kind of think the only lever that you can pull is how do I get more users in the door? Right. And like maybe you know in the very beginning that's true. You don't have anyone. You can, there is no expansion revenue to be gained. But as you go on and you get customers, like that becomes huge because it's easier to sell to people who have already given you their credit card. They're already paying you. They already know you and trust you and like you. And if you don't unlock additional revenue from them, you're just like 
spending all your time trying to get new people who don't know you. You have yeah. to be, you have to persuade just way harder. And it feels yeah. like an endless grind. Uh, what are some of these these businesses and these some industries where it's easier to get expansion revenue? And, and how can like a brand new founder who's trying to come up with an idea think about this in advance? There's kind of three ways to structure pricing, right? One is based on a value metric, which is like subscribers or seats, like mm-hmm. I said. The second is to do feature gating. So to gate off features. So it's not based on usage of your product at all. It's based on which features do you need and you have to pay more for these types of features. And then the third one is to do both, right? So you'll see there's value metric and feature gating going on at the same time. So feature gating doesn't tend to be expansion. It really tends to be, hey, the va- it's based on the value metric as that number goes up. So A, I would focus on that. And then B, it's to think in any space, will this number actually go up over time? And will it go up enough? And it's hard that you just have to guess, right? And one way is to look around and be like, wow, all the CRMs I know charge per seat. I'm guessing that's a pretty good way to do it. So if I have something that's, that I can charge per seat, and of course the rule of thumb is if two, if user A and user B log into your app, they're in the same company and they see something different, then you should charge per seat. And if they see the same thing, then you shouldn't. But if seats is a great value metric, assuming that these teams grow over time or that or that your app will right. infiltrate the company more over time because sometimes they only need three seats and then it's permanent. You know, you just kind of got to think through it. They're not going to expand. Subscribers, of course, is another one and all these, you know, contacts in like ESPs and, and those kinds of things. And that's probably a pretty good way to do it because, you know, they do it. But like I had an app that was an SEO keyword tool, right? So it was a SaaS app. You connected it to like your Google Analytics and it sucked in keywords and then it recommended keywords that you should attack based on your actual incoming traffic, right? So there was an algorithm it used. And I was like, expansion revenue, because it's based on number of keywords processed or number of visits per month or something like that. But you know what? A lot of websites really weren't, they just weren't growing, especially some reason the people that were coming to me, they, they weren't busting through the tiers to the next um, next thing. And it, I thought it might, but really it, it wasn't um, wasn't as successful as I as I thought it would be. So, and the other thing to keep in mind is is typically it is your larger customers. Your larger customers got there by growing fast and they're the ones that are going to continue to grow fast in general. We were talking last week and you also mentioned another lever besides just expansion revenue, but more broadly pricing, which you said is perhaps the biggest lever that you have as a founder and also onboarding being quite, quite powerful. Why is pricing the biggest lever that founders have? I mean, it's, it's just something that a, most of us get it wrong. And it's really easy to get wrong because pricing is hard, you know, but raising pricing, raising your prices is something that can, you can literally do in, in 10 minutes by going in, you know, to your website and going into Stripe or whatever. And whereas so many other levers, it's like, let's build this big integration, two months of work. You know, it's, it's yeah. such a fascinating thing. In addition, pricing, you know, typically you find that the more you can increase prices, A, you, your growth now everyone's paying that, you know, it compounds and everyone's, um, it, it can really increase growth, but also changes your customer type. If you're charging $25 a month or $250 a month, you'll have a different customer base, you know, assuming you, you can figure out a way to charge 250 They will tend to be less price sensitive. They will, t- these are generalizations, but they will tend to churn less and they will tend, you will tend to then start attracting even larger customers. And the best businesses that I see from the inside are the ones that have they do have a they have kind of low price plans with really wide funnels, really wide reach in a big market like electronic signatures or or I'm just giving examples or podcasting or something where there's just a lot of people doing it, but they're that's not their thing. That's not where they make the most of their money. 
they make the most of their money from enterprises that come in and say, mm. you know, you have a $10 plan. So you have this great brand because you have thousands of customers doing that. But it's when they approach you and they say, we want to have 20,000 documents a month signed. All right, that's five grand a month. And you'll see it over and over. You, you can look at IPO, uh, you know, publicly traded SaaS companies. You can look at, uh, I remember a story, Wufu.com. Wufu, they sold several years ago. And one of the quotes in the press release, he was like, uh, one of the founders was like, yeah, 80, maybe 90% of our revenue came from 10% of our customers. The, the lower price plans were really just, they kind of are feeders up into the enterprise, but they're also just a way for you to have a brand that you know feeds up into the higher price. I'm not saying every business needs to be that way because you can certainly make, there are other models that work, but the ones that I see growing pretty fast have, you know, are thinking about it that way. And that's kind of pricing engineering, right? It's, it's yeah. thinking about how can I, how can I, you know, balance these, these things. I think it also goes back to that kind of obsession that new founders have with just bringing new customers in the door. Yeah. And if you think about how much money you make, well, it's like the price you charge times the number of customers. Yeah. And if you're solely focused on just growing the number of customers, you're kind of leaving out the entire other half of this equation, which is like, you know, you could make twice as much money by changing, yeah. you know, a number on your website. Yeah. And that is way easier than finding twice as many customers. Yeah. And we, we've had, this is something we focus on really early on in the tiny seed with the tiny seed batches because most i mean i i was on a call today actually with batch two and i said raise your hand if you think you're you're underpriced or that your value metric is off or that something's just off with your pricing and i believe it was 90 percent of the batch and we're a week in right so that that's going to be the first thing we we focus on first thing we iron out is going to be pricing because everything else flows from that because if you're if you're selling for 50 bucks a month and that's and you don't have a ton of expansion revenue i'm, I'm you know it's not 50 per seat 50 bucks a month you can't afford to do enterprise sales. It changes your customer. It changes uh, your marketing. You can't, you know, you can't afford to do typically cold email outreach if you're charging fifty bucks a month. Probably can't afford Google AdWords if you're charging five hundred a month. Changes all the ways you can market. Changes the ways you can sell. You know, everything else really flows from that. I I started off. I've been thinking, you know, for a couple months, saying like pricing is perhaps your biggest lever, and now it's like I can't think of a better lever, a bigger lever than that. It's only three ways to make more money in your business. The first is to raise your prices. The second is to find more customers, which you've referred to, which is typically the default everyone you know thinks of. And then the third is to sell more uh, like add-ons and such to your existing customers. But typically figuring out how to build a more valuable product, how to position it in a way that it seems more valuable. Because if you position yourself against cheap competitors, everyone's going to compare your prices to them. If you can figure out a way to position and play with the people who are charging 500 bucks a month and then that's the baseline it's incredible incredibly powerful we did this with drip right we were an esp people mm -hmm. compared us to mailchimp and aweber and one day it hit me we're kind of a marketing automation platform which is a a lot of people haven't heard that term they're just expensive complicated pieces of software and they started at about four or five hundred bucks a month and went up and there were thousands a month and so suddenly our 49 dollar a month price point was not compared to mailchimp it was compared to Infusionsoft, Marquette, Marketo, and Pardot and stuff. And that was something I, I stumbled on earlier. That's where I was like positioning is actually another positioning and onboarding or kind of other you know, levers in addition to pricing. Yeah, I was talking to Baird Hall as a company called Wave and another company called Zubtitle. And he kind of had the same positioning thing where his Zubtitle company was basically doing this sort of transcription for your podcast videos and it would mm. add text. And he just couldn't charge that much for it because everybody was comparing him to rev.com. And it's mm -hmm. only like, you know, a a dollar a sentence or something it's so cheap and then he changes positioning so people started comparing him to more like video editing software and then suddenly you could just charge like 10 times more 
Mm-hmm. And I think I'm, I'm interested in this this process you're going through with educating founders going through Tiny Seed about pro, uh, about pricing, because it's something we talk about so often on this show. And yet, when I go to Andy Hacker's meetups or I'm on the forum and I'm talking to people, they really like it. Just doesn't get through. And I think a lot of founders have this idea that, okay, well, you know what you need to do is start off charging $5 a month. And then eventually after you build enough features and you're well-established enough, then eventually you can you know, raise your prices to 50 or 500, but you can't start there. What's your take on that, Rob? Do you think founders should start by picking an idea where they can charge more? Or do you think they need to sort of work their way up from a tiny amount and eventually start charging more? You can do either, of course. There are examples in both that could work. I would lean towards the stair-step approach, which is to build a smaller product in a less competitive niche that probably is lower priced and that will plateau just to learn the ropes and then take that money, whether you sell that or whether you just take the cash off of it to kind of do your next thing. And that would be more the latter where, yeah, you start off with kind of a feature, get live quick. Um, You're probably going to be dealing with, you know, $5 customers are going to be a pain in the butt. But I don't think that that's a terrible way to go, especially if you really are, if it really is your first time and you just don't know the ropes. Mm. However, (laughs) I know that if you want to build like a substantial business, like let's just say high six figure, seven figure business, the the one with the $5 start is you're going to be wandering for a long, long time. And when I started, you know, I've started and grown a bunch of companies and the, la- the last one I did uh, before Tiny C was, was Drip, I wrote down, I want to build a product where the lowest price point is X. And originally X was 99. And by the time we launched, it was 49. But the idea was, I didn't want to play that game anymore because I had had cheaper SaaS apps before and they, were, they just came with baggage. They came with the burden and they, they, were, they were harder to grow in my experience. And so aspirational pricing is what I call this, where like, I aspire to be able to charge 49 bucks a month. So then we started building stuff and I had an idea and we showed it to customers and they were like, eh, not really. But instead, and and some people started using it and they said, this just isn't worth 49 bucks a month. And so what I didn't do was lower the price because some people saying like, you know, I'd be willing to pay 19 bucks a month for this. And I didn't say, okay, cool. I'm going to lower the price to 19. What I said was, what would we need to build for this to be worth $49, you know, and yeah. obviously had dozens and dozens of conversations and it wasn't clear cut and there's a bunch of gut feel. And it wasn't like all the customers told me the same thing. We did have to, you know, me and my co-founder had to whittle away and figure out what to build next. And it took us a while to get there, but that's, it's a process you have to go through. This is the hardest, this stage, you know, when you're trying to figure out pricing and your pre-product market fit, I would say is one of the most difficult of, of starting a startup. There's almost this, bright dividing line that I see when talking to any hackers, where on one side, you have a lot of the founders who are, for example, in Tiny Seed, and they have a business and they're making it work. And they're talking about all sorts of like SaaS metrics to optimize and hiring and like it's kind of more just advanced tips and worries that founders have. But they're already making money and they're just trying to make more money and grow their companies and be more impactful. But on the other side, and this is the vast majority of people, like they're really struggling just to like come up with an idea that makes any sense at all to get any customers in the door. A lot of people are stuck at like making 100 or $200 a month and like they're working for months just to try to get it to $300 a month. And, you know, obviously the answer to this will differ from person to person, but, you know, what do you think are some of the, the biggest differences between people on either side of this line and how people, how can people sort of, you know, cross that line and try to figure out how to make a business that's actually working? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot there. I think of success and being able to achieve it really as these three like first principles, these three factors, and it's hard work, it's luck, and it's skill. And different 
success stories have varying degrees of those. So you'll hear a story about a founder who gets incredibly lucky and hit the right place at the right time in their skill set. Like what Steve Wozniak's an example of this, right? He happened to be in this hobby that, you know, turned out these personal computers and he happened to have done hard work for years to learn how to build these circuits. And he had, he had built that skill through the hard work, right? But, but Apple wouldn't be Apple if they hadn't hit that timing just right. Similar with Bill Gates and and Windows with IBM, or I'm sorry, it was MS DOS at the time. With IBM, there was there was a more luck, and I think Zuckerberg. I think a lot of these like deca billion dollar companies, there has to be some luck factor, even if that luck is just timing. Yeah. So, and I and you can't really control luck, but I do think you can influence luck by working hard. Which I don't know of any major. There's only one or two, probably one I can think of. It's a friend of mine who I won't name, but. He basically says, I got really lucky and I didn't actually work that hard. Usually the story is when you hear Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, or when you hear, you know, I'm trying to even think like Heaton Shaw and Jason Cohen and, you know, Rand Fishkin and those types of folks, they all work pretty hard, especially in the early days, you know, and DHH and, and Jason Fried may, I know that, you know, they don't work full work weeks now. I think they were 30 to 40 hours a week, but in the early days, my guess is they worked hard and by hard, I don't mean long hours. You know, I mean, focused effectiveness you know you're you're driving working on the right things and you're you're just working and putting in the time i have tended in my professional life especially since i've been running my own companies i try I, it's rare i work more than 40 hours a week but in the early days i had no money to speak of and i really didn't have many skills so i i just put in hours and i would work a day job when I say no money, I mean, I could afford my house payment stuff, but I didn't have a bunch of extra money. You know, when I heard people say friends and family round, I was always like, what? Fr-? Like my, we have no money. <laughs> no one has any money. Like my dad's an electrician, you know, it's like they had money to put food on the table and that's it. So yeah, I would go to work all day and then I'd come home, I'd eat dinner and then I would work for five to six hours. I would check out books from the library. I taught myself about a program. I would um, eventually started, you know, building apps and I, I built those skills over time. And there's a bunch of factors, you know, that we could go down rabbit holes of like, is money, what about money, right? And I would say, well, y- maybe you're lucky to be born with money, or maybe you need to work hard to earn money, you know, and build skills that are valuable and blah, blah, blah. But those are kind of the three base factors I see is that most founders I know who are successful are not afraid of the hard work. They have built skills up over time, and eventually they get, they stumble into a little bit of luck, or they kind of make their luck over the course of, you know, a decade of just, putting in the time and building the skills. I was talking to David Shu, who runs a company called Retool a few weeks ago. Hopefully I can get him on the podcast. But his story kind of, it's like the, the thing that I go to when I think about luck as a founder. So him and his co-founder bootstrapped to something close to a million dollars in revenue. And then they did almost the opposite fundraising thing that you've been talking about. Like they're, they bootstrapped there and then they raised a bunch of money. Now they're going for broke, almost like Jason Cohen is doing. But when I talk about like how he found his idea, uh, and when he talks about it, he basically says they kind of lucked into it. They picked something that they thought was really cool, that they were really passionate about. And it turns out that this thing they're building, Retool, which is kind of like these internal programming tools for companies, has a huge TAM, a huge market where there's just tons of customers who pay a ton of money for this. And it turns out to be a really good business. But like he didn't sit down and like plan all of that out. He just kind of lucked into it. And there's so many other founders who are probably equally as talented, equally as smart, who read as many books, you work just as hard, but that luck component is like their passion just doesn't happen to be correlated with something that can turn into a really big business. And so I think a lot of what you want to do as a founder is obviously try to erase as much luck as possible and replace that with skill. Yep. And what's cool about you as an investor is 
you know, I talked to a lot of founders who like choose an idea and don't consider TAM. But as an investor, that's probably like one of the very first things you look at. You probably have a whole checklist of like, can this business work? You know, is it going to be the right size? Can it grow fast enough? You know, what's a competitive landscape look like? That a lot of founders just like aren't really asking. So, you know, walk us through some of the things that you look at in any particular company and that you think you know, maybe more founders should look at so they can kind of look at their companies through the same lens an investor might look at. Mm, that's interesting. Um, you know, I don't spend a lot of time looking at TAM because we don't need billion. Like if you're going to build a billion or a $10 billion company, you absolutely have to say this is a massive, massive market. Because if it's not, it's yeah. not worth it. But if I'm going to say, well, let's build a five, ten, twenty million dollar company, I need to do a you know, a little check and be like, do I think there's that many people that are willing to pay this purchase, you know, this price to get yeah. there? And that's about it. I mean, there's not a, you know, a ton because there are just so many more opportunities. And that is really the beauty of this, right? Is it's the you know, it's that we can literally have thousands and thousands of companies that can get to 10 or 20 million. The way that I think about it, I mean, so yes, we do have a long evaluation criteria, a bunch of questions, you know, how much traction do they have? What is the team like? What is their experience? Why are they the right people? You know, blah, blah, blah. But the way, uh, it's kind of boring. So I'll put it into the, uh, this is the fortune fortune cookie version that I, that I think of. It's three Ps. It's people, product market fit, and price sensitivity. So the people are the founders. Like, are do I feel like do I feel like they love what they're doing? Do I feel like they you know have the ambition? Do I feel like they're shipping? Are they smart founders? I mean, there's a effectiveness. There's there's all kinds of things. Product market fit is obviously do they have people have they built something that people want and are willing to pay for? You know, because building something people want is amazing, but sometimes you can do that and then people aren't willing to pay for it. So. Um, hitting market market fit and then that step after, which I, I've been calling escape velocity, which is where you're actually, because product market fit is where, all right, we build something people want. You still need to find marketing channels and sales channels that work. And once you start to do that, even if you find one, you'll that's when revenue really kicks, you know? So that's product market fit. And then price sensitivity, it, I could just say pricing, but it's like per our earlier conversation or earlier question, you know, um, price is such a massive lever that if, if you can only charge $14 for this product and you'll probably only ever be able to charge $14 for this product, or if your average revenue per user is $14 and, and I talk to a founder and I say, hey, how are you thinking about expanding that? And the founder's like, didn't, you know, ne- have never thought about that. And that that's a bit of a yellow flag, you know, not a red flag, obviously, but like, a, you should be thinking about that. That's a really important thing. And so it, Again, low ARPU is not bad if there's an angle, if there's a way to either raise that over time or to bring in like enterprise customers, um, because that's that's the real way you're going to get into the the seven and eight figure companies. So I know a tiny seed, people applying to join the batches are a little bit more mature. They're not necessarily in the uh, I don't have an idea phase, but a ton of indie hackers are in the I don't have an idea phase. And if there's kind of like this checklist of things that they should be aiming for, you know, ideally high average average revenue per user, mm-hmm. like ideally something that can have good expansion revenue, obviously they need to find product market fit. Is there anything that an indie hacker can do in that situation to try to come up with an idea that does meet some of these criteria? And the reason I ask is because it's it's hard enough for people just to come up with an idea that makes any sense at all. You know, yep. people are sitting around just like, I have no idea what to build. None yep. of the problems that I have seem like they would be good businesses to solve. Uh, and it's even harder to build, you know, not only come up with an idea from scratch, or come up with an idea that checks off all these boxes. How would you approach doing something like that? Coming up with ideas is not only really hard, but it's, I just question it as an exercise altogether. Ideas often become a solution without a problem. 
So I start, I've started from the problem every, every time, at least when I've done it well, when I've done it poorly, I start with my own ideas. Oh man, there's yeah. this new technology, right? I was a software developer for years, new technology. How can I turn that into a product? That's not, <laughs> not the way to go about it. So there's two things I would say is, especially for first time, like again, coming back to stair-stepping, it's like, how can I find a really small product to build just to learn copywriting and marketing and customer support and get the experience and the skill and the confidence and, and build my tool belt out? I would tend to learn uh, to lean towards uh, these ecosystems, almost these app stores, because the marketing isn't as hard. The distribution is built in. So Shopify app store, Photoshop add-ons, I'm trying to, there's a bunch of others. And of course, I, I wouldn't personally go into mobile apps because they're just, they're so crowded. Uh, but any of these ecosystems, there's like Salesforce add-ons, you know, any of these ecosystem where there are a bunch of them now because a bunch of companies have built platforms. and the beauty is if you can get in there and you can rank for something, the distribution's built in and you won't have have learned all the chops of marketing, but you will at least now have a resource, meaning you'll have money coming in and you'll have learned these other skills and built confidence in yourself. But even from there, okay, Rob, so you're saying go build a Shopify app, right? Which may, may or may not be a great idea. Well, there's already a bunch of Shopify apps. So how do I come up with an idea there? That's where I go. I try to find where are there disgruntled people? Where are there people complaining about something? Because comp- people who have pain complain. And wow, that rhymed. I literally just came up with there that. I'm going to start saying that. <laughs> people who have pain complain. And so some that may be forums, that may be private Slack groups, that may be Facebook groups, that may be the, you know, I, I don't know where. There's, there's places you can go to find this out. Maybe it's in-person conversations where you hear someone complaining. Wouldn't it be amazing if you were going to try to build a Shopify app if you could <laughs> go to LinkedIn, find an ex Shopify email support rep or customer support rep, ping them and say, "Hey, I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'll, pay, you know, I can pay you money for it, and just have a conversation. Like, what were some of the biggest things that people complained about that Shopify didn't do, or what were the plugins that that were super popular but didn't do stuff? You know, and just try to get inside. And especially if, again, it's if they're not there anymore, because otherwise it'd be inside information. That's just something I came up up at the top up top of my head. But it's being creative about not looking at the same data everyone else is and trying to find pain points and sources that you can suddenly, you know, kind of whittle your way in because even in competitive spaces, like we launched an ESP in 2013 for crying out loud, there were a hundred, there were literally hundreds of others. And yet we figured out that there was pain, that there was pain with some of the ESPs and how, you know, people wanted more from it. And that was the problem that we solved. I love this approach because it all flows from what you said earlier, which is like problem first. Don't think of a solution, but think of a problem. And if you really bought into that, which is really, it's one of those fundamentals, like get enough sleep, get enough exercise, don't start with the solution, start with the problem. A lot of people pay lip service to, but don't actually do. But once you're actually doing it, it looks like what you're saying, you know, actually talk to people, ask for pain points before you have any sort of idea for what what it is that you're going to build. You should be doing this hunting. And I also like the idea of building on kind of a marketplace. Probably the vast majority of indie hackers who are first getting started know zero about sales or marketing or distribution. Yeah. And if you can just like make that part easier for yourself, which is what you're advising, then yeah. like, yeah, you're not gonna learn everything there is to learn your first your first time at bat, but you're much more likely to succeed because you can focus on all the other hard parts. How do you build a product? How do you do customer support? How do you come up with a you know a good solution for a problem? And then next time around, maybe you can make the distribution challenge a little bit harder, maybe not build on a marketplace and and sort of stair-step your way to you know building on the advantages and the things you learned earlier rather than making it super hard for yourself out of the gate and having to learn everything. Yeah, I think of it like a tool belt, like maybe the, you know Batman's uh, utility belt where 
when you start, you may only, you literally may only have one thing there and it's what you do for a living, right? So if you're a developer, you have code, you know, and if you're a designer, then you have designs chops, or if you're in sales and you have sales chops, how do you start building that out to, to get, uh, you know, SEO, PPC, other types of marketing, copywriting, customer support, you know, and then you just build those out one at a time. I would not have been able to start drip. 15 years ago when I really started kicking up my entrepreneurial career, frankly, 20 years ago is when I launched the first apps, but the first five years was, was exactly what you're talking about. It was me coming up with ideas, spending much time building them and all of them failed. But then slowly it's like, oh, you learn one and then two and then three and then four. You don't have to learn them all at once. I couldn't have learned them all at once. And I wouldn't have had success with Drip 15 years ago because I didn't have that, that utility belt. And I didn't have the confidence I could do it either. Well, listen, Rob, you've learned a ton. And it's cool to see some of the insights that you've had by working with such a wide array of companies instead of just you know starting your own companies one at a time. Is there any parting advice you would like to leave these fledgling indie hackers with, especially you know with the times we're going through right now? A lot of people are surprisingly starting more companies than ever. You know what yeah. I've noticed is you know people aren't as worried about being out of work as out of work as you might think. A lot of them are just starting companies and not looking for jobs. Uh, what's your what's your advice to people in that situation? Yeah, A, I think like we're the best time in history for, for indie hackers and software founders. Uh, 30 years ago, this was, you know, it was shareware. It was just such a different game. So like relish the fact that we live in this time in history and, and have the skills as likely, you know, developers or designers to do this where, you know, the rest of my family worked construction, you know, worked or works in construction their whole life. And that's fine. Hey, I, I did it for several years, but they don't have the the skills that we do. They haven't developed them to get out of it, to have this freedom that we're all seeking. And the second thing I'd say is, you know, there's this great quote from, uh, I believe it's Thomas Jefferson, and it's, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Put in the work. Like it's, it's, and again, I'm not saying long hours, but I'm saying focus and put in the work and build that tool belt and uh, hopefully you build your own luck. Rob Walling, thanks for coming on the show. Can you Absolutely. let listeners know uh, where to go to find out more about what you're up to with Tiny Seed and MicroConf and your various podcasts that you have going on now? I'll only plug one podcast. I have three different ones. But yeah, so um, if you like podcasts and you're not listening to startups for the rest of us, we're about to hit our 500th episode. I've been really up in the game over the past six or eight months. So it's I, I do some interviews, but I do we do a lot of Q&A and it's all about all about this stuff. I mean, this is where all these frameworks come is from just talking about this all the time. And then, of course, tinyc.com, you know, if you're interested, uh, even just getting, we, we're going to open applications in the fall. So if you're, you know, want, just want to get on the mailing list, you can head there. Also, if you're interested in investing in, in early stage B2B SaaS companies, we are doing, a, you know, an, an open raise in essence. So tinyc.com slash invest, uh, if that is something on your radar. And then, yeah, microconf.com, I guess, is the last one. And that's uh, our community for essentially like, you know, self-funded and independently funded uh, startups around the world. All right. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks for having me, man. Listeners, if you enjoyed the episode and you want an easy way to help support the show, you should leave a review for us on iTunes. The reviews are probably the best way to help other people find the show. And I take the time to personally go and read each and every one of them. So I really appreciate it. And the fastest way for you to do that is just go to ndhackers.com slash review. That should open up iTunes for you if you're on a Mac. In addition, I try to send an email every week with each new podcast episode with my insights and my takeaways and my thoughts. You can find that at ndhackers.com slash podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time.